This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We have a fascinating Cleveland City Council story to talk about today, something that none of us are really familiar with. It'll be a good one. It's not what we're starting with, though, on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here to wrap up the week with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And Lisa, we're going to pick up on a conversation that we left off yesterday. First, it was FBI Chief Christopher Wray. Now it's the head of the Federal Trade Commission's watchdogging of Twitter. What is it with Jim Jordan this week? He's like clawing for attention. He's taking on the world. He is on a roll, that's for sure. There was an oversight hearing held yesterday in which Jordan accused the Federal Trade Commission chair, Lena Khan, of targeting Twitter for harassment soon after Elon Musk bought it. He pointed to 350 information requests from the FTC that sought all communications by Musk within Twitter and its work with journalists who were working to shed light on government-driven censorship practices. And uh, he said that Khan is trying to usher in a radical departure from norms that made the American economy great to where she and cronies have unchecked power over business. He says it's outrageous behavior that belongs in banana republics, not the, not the USA. He cited a lawsuit filing in Louisiana in which the FTC directed Ernst & Young independent reviewers to produce a report that would be negative negative to Twitter. But Khan, in her reply to Jordan, she says, we focused on Twitter due to a longtime lack of security and privacy policies that allowed unauthorized users to take over Twitter accounts, including ones, you know, owned by Fox News, and um, pointed to the Musk release of internal Twitter files to journalists that violated a consent decree that bans Twitter from sharing personal info with third parties. Yeah, I've been impressed with the people that have to appear before this circus <laughs> trying to show civility and decorum. But but Jordan is it's the playbook, right? And it, you accuse the other side of doing what you're doing. You know, he's he's calls his committee to investigate weaponization of government, but the committee is weaponization of government. You know, the idea that he's that, that he's going after them for looking at Twitter Twitter's done a lot of damage. I mean, it's it's something that we've all talked about. The, the, the New York Times has a great story, or a column today, which is pointing out that it's crumbling because it be, it was taken over by a, a nut job and <laughs> has, you know, tried to to do that conservative thing. And now the, the Mark Zuckerberg's competitor is racking up followers. But Jordan, this doesn't make sense. And so we followed up that story yesterday. Sabrina Eaton wrote a story about how the Democrats, after all these weeks of hearings with Jordan, are firing back at him saying, look, this is absolutely wrong. You're abusing your position. Yeah, it's just a waste of time. And there are Democrats on this uh, federal government, weaponization of federal government subcommittee, including Stacey Plaskett, the Democrat from the Virgin Islands. She said that Jordan and the GOP is more concerned with partisan political stunts to hurt Biden and increase their own power instead of creating jobs, fighting inflation and lowering 
costs for families. And she says this committee is being used to settle scores, showcase conspiracy theories, and advance an extreme agenda that actually undermines Americans' faith in democracy. I did like when one of the Democrats on this committee pointed out that the head of the committee who's calling for people to obey the law has ignored a subpoena to appear before Congress for (laughs) months and months and months. So when you're trying to say the rule of law should apply, the leader of this committee is not doing so. It's odd that things have been fairly quiet with Jim Jordan and all of a sudden he's just gone off the deep end. Uh, it's, uh, It's been a strange week. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's latest effort to rev up the electric vehicle scene in the state, Laura? He is adding a whole bunch of charging station along interstates in Ohio. It's the first nation that is announcing these sites and vendors for charging stations that are being paid for with federal and private money. Wants to ensure there's at least one along every 50 miles of interstate highway in Ohio so you don't have to worry about running out of battery on the side of the road. So 27 new stations, each of which will have at least four ports. Those are going to be at gas station stores and restaurants along Interstate 70, 71, 76, 77, and 90. Two of them are going to be in the Cleveland area on 71 and 77. And they're going to be at businesses, right? It's not just going to be that you pull over on the shoulder of the highway and there's a pole there that you plug into. No, although with all of their rest stops that they're spending all this money on, you'd think that they'd put a charging station there so you could enjoy your story trail while your car is charging. (laughs) But that didn't come up. Um, After this, they're going to focus on 16 more stations along the non-interstate highways. That's like US 30 that goes from Canton to Mansfield and all, you know, way farther than that. There's already 13 charging stations along the interstates. And apparently about 52,000 Ohioans drive electric vehicles. That's according to DeWine. Yeah. But again, you'd have to get off. The, the, the wording of this makes it sound like you're staying on the highway. You have no, to exit like no. you do for gas. Or right. Like else. gas or your fast food or a bathroom. Um, it's funny. I was mapping out a trip and, you know, you go to search a long route and you can look for gas stations. You can look for for restaurants and now you can look for charging stations so you could google map your trip ahead of time and know exactly where you can stop to charge i'd be interested in the 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 profit sharing if if ohio is building these facilities i hope that the businesses that they're at just don't get all the cash because ohio is subsidizing them it would be nice if the taxpayer got something back out of that that there's some kind of sharing of whatever the extra payments are the story didn't really address how that. No, we don't know how they're taxing your fill up of energy. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to today in Ohio. Something quite childish happened at a Cleveland city council meeting Wednesday that most of us who've covered city hall over the last few decades have not seen before and can't remember happening. It threatens the civility that has prevailed in city government through countless administrations. Layla, what was it and why did it happen? So Wednesday was city council's July meeting. They're on summer recess, so they only meet once a month during the summer. And at some point during the day, Councilman Mike Polensic puts out a news release foreshadowing that that evening when council members were giving their few minutes for floor speeches, he was going to talk about public safety and the increase in gun violence in the city. Earlier in the week, he had written a pretty scathing letter to Justin Bibb, taking him to task for not doing enough to curb the violence and and improve police staffing and and so on and so forth. 
So Polensic's comments at the council meeting were expected to be a continuation of that. Well, the meeting time rolls around. It's like five o'clock and neither Bib nor a single member of his administration shows up. Council members were completely livid. Some suggested that they even hold up legislation because they felt so disrespected. And Council President Blaine Griffin made some really stern comments of his own at the meeting. And he said, you know, he wouldn't let council be a punching bag and, and be so disrespected. We initially thought, okay, you know, perhaps there was some scheduling conflict with the entire administration. <laughs> Or perhaps Bibb didn't know the rules about decorum surrounding these meetings and his responsibility to them. But when Courtney reached out to the mayor about it, his spokesperson confirmed in, in no uncertain terms that indeed his absence was an act of protest. They were not going to sit through what they decided was going to be Mike Polensic's political grandstanding and attacks on the mayor's integrity and his hard work without the mayor having a chance to respond to those criticisms. So that's what he did. He and his entire team boycotted the meeting in protest, and and uh, we weren't quite sure if this was unprecedented or not. Well, I, I'll get to the unprecedented in a minute. I, I did I did like the one comment the administration made about if the council is so interested in getting work done, why do they take summer recess? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a long tradition of taking the summer off with one meeting a month, even though they're paid quite a bit of money. And this, and as the administration said, if you're so hot on solving crime, why do you disappear for the summer? It's a good question. Why do they get the summer off? The city doesn't stop operating during the summer. Um, it, 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 it is though a childish move, right? This is not the way to get business done. I mean, Blaine Griffin on the floor made comments about holding up legislation, which he'd quickly walk back on Thursday after meeting with the mayor, right? Yeah, yeah. They met Thursday morning. We we don't know exactly what was said during that meeting, but Griffin said he's moving on. He's not going to be petty about it. And then the city released a, a statement to, to Courtney last night that kind of echoed that and said that they have found some common ground. They're feeling good about the relationship. I mean, it was it was there was a positive upswing to it, but still you could feel tension in their in their statement. So you covered City Hall for a long time. I covered City <laughs> Hall you know, 20 years ago. A lot of people who are familiar with City Hall were scratching their heads trying to figure out, has this ever happened before? And yesterday evening, I heard from Brent Larkin, our longtime opinion leader, retired, writes a column today. And he said, hey, my memory serves the, the biggest time this happened was during the Carl Stokes administration. I mean, he almost nailed it exactly in the time. In February of 1971, Carl Stokes did the exact same thing and hmm. pulled all his people out. They boycotted the meetings. It lasted for at least four months. Dang. And uh, when you read the quotes, it, 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 it look, it's hard to decipher some stories from 50 years ago, but it looks very much like this was about race. There were four black council members that supported the mayor. The Urban League put out a statement very strongly supporting what the mayor was doing. And the statements were all about disrespecting the mayor, that 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 the mayor, the executive deserves to be respected when he is in a council meeting like this. And that if they're not going to have that kind of decorum, he's not going to come. What which, was the nature of the disrespect? Like what was happening? What what gave rise to the actual boycott? Were there specific moments that? Well, it it there were a lot of fiery issues going on back then. It, it just it the 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 head of council back then seemed like 
he was at odds with the mayor on everything he was doing. I mean, it was, you, you could really, in story after story, you could see these guys were fighting each other. I mean, there were stories that were petty about who was going to get credit for different projects because the council president was trying to do it. What What is interesting is we all know who Jerry McFall is. He was a sheriff who was corrupt and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. finally got convicted and he, he's since died. Well, he was a city councilman back then. And it looks like, if I'm reading it correctly, he was the leverage that brought it back together. They were going to lose wow. 200 million plus in HUD dollars if they didn't get some things passed. And McFall said, I'm not passing them unless you show up for my hearing and and then we'll talk. There's, I can't find a story that said they showed up, but they did together. The administration and the council did pass the program they needed. They did get the money. There was a big battle about public housing. The, the people didn't want to put public housing in the city. The administration was push, pushing for public housing. Um, very, very interesting. But it took at least four months. For four months, nobody showed up. You could take the quotes out of 1971 hmm. and paste them directly in the Courtney story, and they would feel like the same thing. So credit Brent Larkin. What a memory, man. That is 50 years that is, ago. That's some fascinating history. I think yeah. that the closest I had ever seen in my time here in 20 years is was in 2014, just after the, the DOJ released its report on police use of force in Cleveland. I was covering council and, and uh, um, they had a meeting where the entire administration walked out because Councilman Jeff Johnson used his floor speech to call for the resignation of Mike McGrath, who was the safety director at the time. But walking out is not the same as not showing up. So, well, we should also point out that Cleveland has what I consider to be an ideal form of government. The 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 council has a whole huge series of committee meetings in which the administration is required to come and answer questions. And then on their Monday night meeting, everybody comes into the room. And so there's there's many chances for council members to go to the different directors and city government and say, hey, what's going on with my project? It's a it's just a perfect place for communication. So for one side to not show up, that's that's not healthy. This is a good system. They need to continue working together. And look, let's face it, you're the mayor. So you're going to get criticized. Mike, Mike Polancic has been criticizing mayors his whole time in, in the council. That's part of the job, right? I mean, yes. you ran for this. You got to take it. And it's, it's just so common. This happens all the time. The, these criticisms, that's what the floor speeches are <laughs> designed for. And, you know, and it's not, I, I personally feel that I mean, the mayor has plenty of opportunity to respond to those things. Yeah, maybe not in real time, but but you know, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, I think it was a childish act. It, again, he, he's not schooled in the history of traditions at city hall, but, but he blinked basically this, this, this you know, he's letting them see him sweat. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do that. If you're in this kind of relationship, right. uh, I hope they, I hope it doesn't go on for four months. Although <laughs> you wouldn't know for a month because they won't meet again for a month. This is not a council <laughs> that gets together. Summer, summer break. School's out for summer. I wish we had one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A year ago, the talk across the nation was about out-of-control inflation, the likes of which we had not seen in 40 years. So much doom and gloom was predicted, and now not. Reporter Sean McDonald, Lisa, he talked to an analyst at the Cleveland Fed 
to understand why. What did he learn? Yeah, we we found that inflation hit a two-year low in June to 3%, and that was after a high of 9.1% of June of last year. So Sean went and talked to the director of Inflation Research Center at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, Rob Rich. And Rich says, yeah, he says inflation should continue to slow, but he said, you know, Sean said, why such a big change in a year's time? And this is all pandemic related pretty much. So uh, Rich said it spiked, you know, because of several things, the COVID stimulus funds and lower interest rates that overheated the pandemic economy. There was pent up demand for goods and services uh, that drove up prices. And then, you know, you had the closing and then reopening of service industries like bars, restaurants, hair salons, travel, and so forth. And that fed into the pent up demand. And then there were supply chain issues. And those were also linked to high demand for products. And then there were transport slowdowns as well. The Russia and Ukraine war also affected food and energy prices. And we've seen if we look, you know, at at certain things within the CPI, energy is down 16.7%. Food prices are still up at 5.7%, but there's little to no increases in food prices since February. So things are kind of leveling out. Now, if you look at the core consumer price index, which is minus food and energy, which are considered volatile. So inflation is at 4.8%. That's down from 5.91% just last year. And he says it should come down further. So yeah, the pandemic just wreaked havoc on the CPI and the economy. Yeah, the, the, the bubble of cash that was injected into the economy and the stimulus funds and all of the, the aid the government provided, people have argued that that would have led to inflation. And eventually that cycles out too. And so we're a few years down the road and that bubble of cash is gone. It seems very, very much like we're heading back to the way things were pre-pandemic. There's a good piece by Sean to uh, help people understand it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. University Square in University Heights is perhaps best known for a two-story Target store with an escalator for shopping carts. It's very strange. It was supposed to be the suburbs retail solution 20 years ago when it took over the corner of Cedar Avenue and Warrensville Road. Now it's in bankruptcy. Laura used to live near there. What's next for this project that never lived up to its billing? I do know this target. Well, when my kids were babies, I had to use the elevator because you are not allowed to put the cart on the escalator with a kid in it. Just (laughs) safety tip to everyone. So it used to have a Joanne Fabrics. It used to have a grocery store. Now it's just largely vacant. And the owners filed for bankruptcy protection. What's complicating that is that that does not include the Target or the Macy's, which are the big, biggest stores in the complex. So they're going to have to figure that out. But University Square Holdings LLC filed for federal bankruptcy protection on Monday, listing up to $50 million in liabilities. Most of it is property taxes that probably are not going to be collected. You've got to think that's been hurting the University Heights, Cleveland Heights School District for a long time. But they, this is a step to go ahead with a long ago announced plan to sell the property for a proposed 
redevelopment. They want to add apartments, which there are apartments around there. And it's a fairly walkable area. It's like across the street from a Whole Foods and there's the whole Cedar Center area. So they would do that, put the apartments in first and then redevelop around it. But like I said, that Macy's and Target is going to complicate things a little bit. The Target is popular. I don't think the Macy's is very popular anymore. I'm surprised it's still open. What's What was odd about that thing is on the upper level, they had a whole row of stores mm-hmm. that never were occupied. And right. They built them. They, they were Well, there. that's where the Joann's was too. You had to drive up, you know, two stories in the parking garage to get there. There were staircases. Like you could go to Target and then climb the stairs and walk across the parking lot to Joann's. But I don't think very many people ever did that. Well, and the other problem was that the whole parking facility was rotting almost yes. immediately. Yeah. And so it was Yeah, there was very... always parts blocked off and like leaking and yeah. yeah, it was it never felt like it was in good shape. And as much as like I just said that it, that's a walkable area, I I lived a couple blocks from there and I don't think I ever walked to Target more than two or three times because there were just so many lanes of traffic. Mm-hmm. It was not it it wasn't made for you to walk there. Yeah. And the building, the whole, you know, situation, it's like an impenetrable fortress. I mean, I when you drive by, you. you're like, what the hell? And, you know, you maybe see the Applebee's sign, but you can't see the target from the street. You know, and then that parking garage is actually kind of scary to me. I don't even like going in there. It no. does feel like it would be more, it would look more in place at a place like, I don't know, Chicago or mm. something where there's built up mm-hmm. everywhere around it. Cause that's the kind of look that it has, but on either side are one story buildings and, you know, stoplights. So it, you're right. It is not an inviting place mm-hmm. to go into. Okay. Well, we'll see if it becomes more inviting after they convert it. You're listening to today in Ohio, 10 Cleveland area startup companies have raised $95 million in venture capital in the last few months. Layla, I was surprised to see the old Project Unify right. in this group. What Me are the too. ventures? Yeah, it's been it's been really tough to raise money for venture venture capital lately because of higher interest rates and, and issues with banks. But these these ten have done okay this first quarter. All this data comes to us from the 2023 Venture Monitor. It's a report published by market data company PitchBook and the National Venture Capital Association, and just over 26 million was raised in the Akron area pretty much by one company, that's Clutch Cannabis. They recently opened Citizen by Clutch in Lorraine. That's the first dispensary in Ohio with a drive-through. Then we've got Land Energy, which raised $22 million. They build two-wheel electric vehicles that can be used as bike, mopeds, or full-fledged motorcycles. There's a company called Axel, I believe it's pronounced. Raised, they raised $20 million. They're a Cleveland-based health tech a healthcare tech company that creates software that helps healthcare systems share data and information. And uh, MetaView raised $15 million. They're a Cleveland-based med tech company that uses augmented reality to create surgical navigation and teleprocedure platforms. You have Folio Photonics. They raised $5 million. It's a Solon company that innovates in the data center industry, making software and devices that are faster and, and more secure. And then Unify Work, which you mentioned, Chris, they raised $3 million. They're based in Willowick. They're trying to change the way hiring works with a new app, which helps connect job seekers and companies. You know, Listeners might remember that this began as a venture that was supposed to solve poverty with data, but now it's an app. Um, and then rounding out the list, we have Augment Therapy, which raised $2 million. 
uh, this Chagrin Fall startup uses augmented reality software to help kids through physical therapy exercises. And, and look, that the the project Unify, it's called Unify's job. What is it called now? Unify Jobs or something? Unify Work. Work. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting concept that could alter the way employers get employees, which they're all desperate to do. Uh, and obviously, there are some investors that believe in it. So it's good to see that getting on its feet. Uh, interesting that they were all able to get that kind of money. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, how long have we talked about the threat of Irish Town Bend collapsing into the Cuyahoga River and blocking all shipping, which would destroy our economy? What is the seriously concrete step taken this week to prevent that from happening? Yeah, I was just at Irish Town Bend yesterday. That's actually one of my favorite places to hang out right there around Rivergate Park. So the Port of Cleveland approved a $60 million contract with Cincinnati-based Gettle Incorporated to begin stabilization of Irish Town Bend. The work is supposed to start in September. It's going to take about 18 to 24 months to complete. So what they're going to be doing is installing new bulkheads on 2,100 feet of riverbank they're going to remove tons of fill material that was apparently added to Irish Town Bend back in the 1960s. Um, and then there's the eventual construction of a 23-acre park along the bend. And then the total cost for this, including the park, will be about $100 million. So Gettle has a lot of expertise. They, they're experts in marine construction and earth retention, so they sound like the perfect fit for the job. But the port has been working towards fixing Irish Town Bend since 2013, and they've been working with various agencies, the city of Cleveland, the county, NOACA, the Cleveland Metro Parks and others, which are crucial partners in getting this fixed and then making it into a park. And the port reached an agreement back in March on a lawsuit filed by developer Bobby George, who bought a like a half acre plot with a vacant restaurant back in 2018. And, you know, he was fighting, you know, he rejected a sale offer and then he, you know, didn't want eminent domain to take over. But George will now be allowed to operate a small restaurant on that site. We, uh, if you go back in our archives, the stories we did when this first kind of came into the consciousness really portrayed Armageddon scenarios if that collapsed. It's not a stable hillside at all. And it hasn't, which is, which is great. But with climate change and the way we get the downpours and the rain, you could easily see things change over there quickly. They really can't get to this fast enough. And it's good to finally have a contract to, to get the earth movers over there to start clearing it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch it. Like I said, I go down there regularly, so I'll be able to watch the progress as they, as they fix the bend. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Clevelander Jake Paul is into a bit of everything, but one of his business concerns has become controversial. Laura, why did your native Canada order a recall of the prime energy drink? This is all because of caffeine. And I got to say, all of a sudden this summer, I'd never heard of prime before, but my kid goes to a birthday party, comes back with this bright yellow bottle that says prime. And I'm like, what is this? And I go to Little League and all the moms are talking about like, oh, you can find the watermelon flavor at Costco. And I'm like, seriously, what is this? Well, it is. <laughs> there are two versions of prime. And I really hope my kid was drinking the hydration version, which is like Gatorade and looks very similar to the caffeine version, which has a huge amount of caffeine in it. And so 200 milligrams of caffeine per 12 ounces, that's the equivalent to six cans of Coke or two Red Bulls. And that has been marketing to kids. And these are totally 
aimed at kids. So Canada said, you can't sell the caffeine drink, energy drink here. And Chuck Schumer in our Congress has said he, he wants them really regulated too. Yeah, I, I the, the amount of caffeine in these drinks is kind of frightening. If your kid were to drink one of those drinks, it is off the charts, right? Yeah, it's funny. The FDA cites a limit of a 400 milligrams of caffeine consumption per day for healthy adults. Never set a caffeine limit or guidelines for kids. That's because kids are not supposed to have caffeine. I mean, especially if you would like them to sleep. So yeah. I... I, I I do think this is problematic and they are super popular and super cool. All right. You're listening to today in Ohio. One more for the summer. Cleveland has a hodgepodge of rules for restaurant patios and sidewalks. City leaders aim to change that. How Layla and what is a parklet? <laughs> so let's answer that question first. A, a parklet is a sidewalk extension that provides more space and amenities for people who using the street. Usually parklets are installed on parking lanes and they use several parking spaces. In this particular case, the city wants to give restaurants permission to create parklets that allow for more outdoor dining space outside and, and you know, and, and other limited uses. This idea really began during the pandemic when the city gave restaurants permission to use the public right of way, including parking spaces and the sidewalks for outdoor dining during the spring and summer and fall months to, to help with social distancing. But this legislation extends that permission permanently and throughout the year if they get the right permits for it. The city's motivation here is really that they're, they're hoping businesses will invest in making their parklets more attractive if they're permitted to keep them you know, throughout the year as opposed to having to haul furniture in and, and out of storage all year. And if it's just a temporary thing, the city would love to see more permanent structures made of wood or built in landscaping that could also eliminate the need for those ugly Jersey barriers to separate the space from, from traffic. CDCs can also get permission to create parklets that stretch across multiple businesses, which would really help out those businesses that can't really afford to do it on their own. And also, this is not just for restaurants. These new rules would, would allow other types of businesses to use the public right-of-way, too. That includes retailers. They couldn't sell stuff from the sidewalk, but the uses, the uses would be limited to offering seating, room for customers to eat and drink, and bicycle corrals. I, I, it did strike me that this is year-round, and we all know what happens in the winter in Cleveland. Yeah. We get a lot of snow, and if you have tables and chairs set up kind of in the street, these are going to be in popular areas because that's where restaurants are. How do you plow that? Where do you put the snow I, if it's not I, on top I of tables and don't chairs? See, I don't see restaurants keeping their tables and chairs out during the winter. Even even on permanent patios you know, on their private property, they pull that stuff in. They they you know cover them up for the winter. Nobody's trying to sit outside in the. So so why do it? Right. You know, right. And it sounds it sounds like a pedestrian nightmare. If you're going to have to navigate around these sidewalk you know parklets, you're walking in the street. I mean, where do the pedestrians go? I know you know. Did you see the photo that Courtney put on the top of her story? It it shows these things set you know set up basically in like the fire lane, right? <laughs> like, right. I, I would never want to sit that close to moving cars. Me, me neither. I mean, it looks terrible. It's not even on the sidewalk. It's in the. It's on the road. So I don't know that. I mean, 
Also, I thought it was interesting that initially the city wanted businesses to have to seek permission from neighboring property owners before they could expand their parklets, but city council didn't like that idea because it would let one property owner strike down the plan for the parklet, even if others wanted it to go forward or if the neighborhood thought it would be a good idea. But I kind of thought that was, don't you think that the neighboring business or neighboring property owners should get to have some kind of say? Yeah, I think, I think. Yeah, if if forty percent of the neighbors don't want you to have it and sixty percent do, <laughs> I knew you, you were going to go there with this. I knew it. <laughs> I almost went there. I, what I, I don't do get it. is why we don't have more streets just get closed for this kind of thing. We do this in Europe all the time, and then there's no danger from cars, and it becomes lovely. And you you would think that there would be ways to set that up in certain neighborhoods where you just close it down to the traffic because I'm with you. I would not want to be sitting side by side with the cars flying by. But you can't do that on West 25th. I mean, you can't close down West 25th. I'm sorry. You could try. No. You could think about it. You never know. Now, interesting that uh, they're trying to bring some order to this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the week. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, everybody who listens. Come back Monday. We'll be talking about some more news.